0: Thanks for joining me. All right. So we are back with Andrew Hallam. We've had a few segments to the show so far. So if this is the first one you're tuning into, um, go through the episodes and uh, check out the other ones because we've been having some great conversations. Um, I'm going to tee up the topic of cryptocurrency and the future of banking. And I'll kind of give you some backstory to it. So in our previous little segment of the show, I talked about one of my training clients and him and I have conversations on finances all the time and he gives me insights on cryptocurrency investing um, financially responsible spending uh, decisions and to give you some insight. Um, this client of mine has been very successful with his own investing, but if you looked at the car that he drives, you would never guess he has like an old Pontiac. I think it's discontinued. I think it's on its fourth engine. And he doesn't try to show off with the clothing that he wears or the vehicle that he drives. And he teaches me how to save money on winter tire purchases. So the the things that I've learned from him are endless, which has made me excited to have you, Andrew, on the show, because it's going to give me even more insights. But with that being said, when I bring up the topics of cryptocurrency and banking, uh, what are the first things that come to mind for you?
1: Well, one is, I think, just the wild popularity of cryptocurrencies right now. There are more cryptocurrencies than there are stocks on the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, and the Toronto Stock Exchange combined. Um, So there are about 7,000 cryptocurrencies now. And they've all been rising exponentially in value. I can't actually see the future. Of course, nobody can. For me, in terms of my, my personal investing, I see cryptocurrencies as a little bit more of a speculation than an investment. And so I'll, I'll explain why. Um, with an investment such as, let's say, properties, so real estate, you have an entity that's real, the property, and you have cash flow coming from the renter. And so anything that creates cash flow or has a potential to create cash flow is an investment. So the 7 Eleven down the street, if you purchased it, much the same thing because it can create cash flow. Now, as people come in and they actually spend their money, and the money comes to, to the owners eventually. And investing in the stock market is much like that. So I prefer investing in a diversified portfolio of low cost index funds. They represent real businesses with real, genuine cash flow. And so, on aggregate, over time, The stock market growth long term will reflect the aggregate growth of those earnings. The tricky thing about a cryptocurrency is that it doesn't actually have any earnings. And so there's no cash flow associated with it. So much like any currency, if you owned, let's say, $100 in every one of the world's currencies today, every one of the world's non-digital currencies, and actually we could take you back to 1800. So take you back to 1800 you buy $100 worth of every one of the world's currencies. And let's just, for argument's sake, say, you know, it's worth 2000 bucks Today, that would still be worth 2000 bucks Because currencies are what we call a zero-sum game. So there's no such thing as one currency just continuing to rise and rise and rise and rise. They kind of, they float up and down within a band. But on aggregate, currencies don't make money. So it's really going to be interesting to see with cryptocurrencies and you have, you know, somebody like Warren Buffett. And I'm a little bit more aligned with someone like Warren Buffett or Jamie Dimon from JPMorgan Chase, who actually believes that it's much more of a speculation. So when you purchase it, you have to actually hope that someone else in the future is willing to pay more for it than you've paid. And so it's hard at this stage, too, to think of it as an actual currency of trade because the prices are so volatile. Currencies aren't really meant to continue to rise. And so because they're not stable, it's kind of hard to price my MacBook Air at a certain price in Bitcoin, knowing that in the time it takes me to take my wallet out and and swipe my Visa, that that price has changed multiple times in, in, in several seconds. So I think that it's something that people should be very careful about. I would suggest not to invest anything more than you're willing to lose just in case because it doesn't have an underlying cash flow asset. So for especially a lot of young people listening to me right now are probably going to bristle at this idea. But when we're looking at long-term growth, I like to look at something that's not a certainty because nothing is a certainty. But if I'm investing in properties and I'm investing in actual real businesses, Via the stock market Uh, Long term, long term growth Will be there because it will reflect The cash flow Of the entities that I'm actually Investing in
0: I love that answer, and I will elaborate as to why. I find that a lot of people are easily excited about short-term gain. They see the opportunity to gain like 10 bucks on a $100 investment in cryptocurrency, but they may not have the systems in place to sustain it over a long period of time. And I see that come up often in fitness with uh, the quick biohacks and all that stuff that comes up. And one of the things that we alluded to in a prior segment was uh, just the, the lessons that we learned from the pandemic pandemic. And I shared about how I kind of diversified my um, streams of income, found more ways to monetize skills and very similar to how you spoke to the value of like just owning real estate or having things that are like tangible. Um, And yeah, like, there, there is a ton of value to be had from being able to assess like value in, in different businesses on the stock market and being able to understand that more clearly. Have there been any resources that have kind of helped you along the way in your assessments of which investments to choose or have you used like, uh, I mean, you, you've spoken about uh, different choices that you've made as far as like uh, group investments kind of thing. Can you speak to that a bit more?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and I read and continue to read just about anything and everything. And you know obviously, people can go out and try and buy individual shares of companies, which is something I did. When I first started out, I bought actively managed mutual funds, which is, which is what most investors actually end up doing. So they get a financial advisor. The advisor recommends a, a mutual fund, which is basically a basket of stocks, a bunch of stocks, and a professional trader we'll trade those stocks, hopefully to increase the value of the mutual fund on behalf of the investor. Um, So I started out doing this. And then when I recognized that there are inner fees associated with them, I thought then I would move towards buying my own stocks. So if I bought my own stocks, I didn't have to pay management expense ratios, these little hidden fees on these mutual funds, which incidentally can really add up. So compound interest can work both for you and against you. And if you're paying an extra 1% a year in fees, one and a half percent, it sounds like nothing. But over your lifetime, it can be the difference between you having $500,000 and you having $800,000 or more. So that niggling one and a half percent annual fee year after year after year can end up really killing your growth. Then, So the idea of moving into individual shares is something that I did. And then, as I learned more, I recognized that very few people can actually beat the return of the stock market by buying individual shares over a long time period. And our lifetimes are really the time periods that we should be most interested in, not how much money we'll make this week or this month. If we really want to be greedy, we need to look at what are the behavioral odds, what are the economic odds of us beating the overall market. So when I say beating the overall market, it's like, imagine owning, you could take the S&P 500 as an example, 500 large US companies. And when you buy a stock market index, you're, you're purchasing, virtually purchasing all 500 of those stocks. So the good, the bad, the downright ugly, you're just buying all of them. And the economic research is such that what's fascinating is that most financial professionals, most financial traders, actually underperform a stock market index over a 10 year period and those that actually beat the stock market index aren't the same ones that beat it over the following 10 year period and so for me it was this realization that wow okay so i can actually beat 90 percent of professional traders over my lifetime or over any 10 year period without any work without doing any research just by adding to a portfolio of low-cost index funds. So in the United States, that's really easy with a Vanguard life strategy fund or a Vanguard target retirement fund. In Canada, you can buy an all-in-one ETF, which is much the same thing. It's just an entire portfolio wrapped up into a single product. So you know you set your money to go into this on autopilot every month, and you will beat 90% of the pros. It doesn't mean that you're going to make money every single year because the stock market isn't like that. But over lengthy periods of time, and this isn't just like anecdotal, this isn't just observational. If you asked Warren Buffett or you asked any Nobel Prize winner in economics this question, how do I beat 90% of the professionals without any work? They'll tell you, oh, easy, just build a diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds. And so that's what I do.
0: I love that. There's a lot to take away from that, and hopefully people hear it um, and actually take some action on it. The second piece to this segment that I wanted to touch on is just the future of banking. And I'll kind of like explain more of what I'm, I'm getting at. What I've been seeing a lot is uh, these apps where you can store, like you can get your paycheck essentially deposited to an online platform, no longer a um, brick and mortar bank with tellers or anything. It's all digitally held. Um, do you think that's going to be something that uh, takes over banks like scotia bank etc or um do you think it's going to be another one of those speculative things
1: i don't know in one sense the banks are doing that already i mean they're already halfway they're already halfway there with all of our online banking i think that um we do know about the security of the banks and so it's going to be i don't think something that businesses for example are going to adopt really really quickly because they do want that security, so even with brokerages, you know, there's the big question of, "How secure is this particular brokerage? How secure is my money with it?" And so, there are a lot of people too that will weigh up different brokerages in terms of security. So, you know, if there's something that's a bit more cloud-based, and it's brand new, it's untested, and maybe it will save people one or two basis points a year. Um, but doesn't have the same kind of, I think psychological and historical um, security. And I say psychological is a big thing because you could prove that it's just as secure, but psychologically, how quickly are people going to adapt to that? When it comes to safety uh, and loss aversion, loss aversion is huge with people. Like it's really big. I mean, I have a hard time, trying to sometimes convince people to go with a firm like vanguard put your money into vanguard they've been they're you know they they're the first uh they built the first index fund it's a great way to low cost largest uh, basically mutual fund index fund provider in the world now there you go and a lot of people still will go well you know what about security like what what if what if vanguard goes bankrupt or what if something sketchy happens so i don't think that what we're talking about here is is going to happen overnight slowly it might happen with a certain sect of the population but i think it will probably take a really long time to if ever to uh completely supersede the banks
0: yeah well i mean i love that because like there, there's a lot that can kind of come up in a person's thoughts when it comes to their finances and it can be influenced by the interest rates that are charged or the service fees that are charged but at the same time when you bring up the topic of security that's something that we can't take for granted the fact that we have reassurance that uh, if something were to happen like a bank is much more accountable than maybe like a cloud-based system etc Um, but that essentially draws this segment of the show to a close. Are there any parting words of advice to someone that you would want to give when it comes to how to spend $100?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, here's one. Uh, To spend $100, this is something that, that your listeners might not expect to hear me say because some of them are going to expect to hear me say, invest it. But you're asking me about spending it. And he, here's what's fascinating. There was some really cool research done on giving the money away or purchasing something for somebody else with that money. So there were, I'll, I'll tell you about a, a fascinating experiment that was done. It was a physical test. And it was done for people where they were asked to hold out like a five-pound weight. You know, so it was a test in a subway. Here's a five-pound weight, dude. Hold it out in front of you, and we're going to measure how long – it takes before your arm drops you know so your physical endurance gets fully fatigued and so they have this, these people doing this they're holding it out they're measuring how long they can hold this five pound weight straight out and then afterward they let them rest and they say oh that's really cool um and they too tell them like we'll give you a dollar if you do this right so here's your incentive for taking part in this little experiment we'll give you a buck and so they give the person the chance to rest they're chatting with them and they give them the dollar and then they say to them, um, oh, you know what, if you want, you could donate that dollar too. And they, they had a charity there, and you put it in a charity jar. And then they let the person rest and ask them if they want to try it again, um, just you know for free, like another shot at it, just to see if they could hold it out longer. And the people that ended up keeping the dollar ended up being able to hold that five-pound weight about the same amount of time as they did previously. A little bit less because there was a little bit of fatigue, residually. But the people that actually donated the dollar on aggregate held that weight out longer. So it's a weird thing. Generosity. It's like something that's it's, it's ingrained and it's deep into our DNA. Like we're actually meant to be helpful. We're actually meant to, we're meant to be generous. It actually makes us feel pretty good inside. And I'm not saying like that 100 bucks donate it to some nameless charity. I'm saying do something kind of fun with it because research suggests something called pro-social giving gives us a far better bang for our life satisfaction buck. But when we can actually see the recipient, it may not have to be – it doesn't have to be a charity. It could be a gift that you're giving a friend or it could be something you're helping somebody out with. Um, and it can be a surprise. So here's something that I find fun. But one of the things I often used to do, and I mentioned this in my book, Balance, is I would be in a restaurant with a friend and we would be scouring the restaurant trying to figure out whose bill we were going to pay. And we would like spend half our meal time trying to figure it out. Like, oh, yeah, that guy over there, he looks kind of cranky and he's really mean to the waitress. Wouldn't it be kind of fun if we just paid for his bill? And he didn't know. So we would bring, we would bring the server over to us and we'd say, hey, look, you know, we're we're picking that like that young family over there. We're picking that 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 old guy over there, um, and we would say, just bring us their bill and we'll pay it. But don't tell them, don't tell them. That, just say your bill is covered. So I mean, to us, talking about a fun way to spend a hundred bucks, like you and a friend to do that. No one expects that, and you impact them. You impact them forever because, Chris, they'll never forget that. Like if if you and I went out, we like, you know, got burgers and beer and the server told us, uh, yeah, Chris, Andrew, your meal has been covered by somebody in the restaurant. You and I would never forget that. We would always wonder, like, who did it? And when you're actually the giver, it is just so much fun. A little bit of mischief, but it's also so much fun. Like we're meant to be givers.
0: I love that and it's something that I've seen amongst uh successful business owners that are local to Edmonton uh during the pandemic I actually had my Easter dinner covered by a local business owner to who to this day is anonymous like I've spoken to him on Instagram but I don't know his first name I've had coffee with the guy still don't know his name um so (laughs) the impact is incredible and uh successful people know the value of that. So I'm hoping that people kind of take that advice and roll with it, but, uh, we're going to head on into our next segment. So thank you listeners and viewers for tuning in and hopefully you check us out for the next one.